Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You know, New York is the greatest place to work and, uh, and learn how to work. So I was up there doing it, and somebody said, uh, you ain't funny. Get off the stage. So that's how, you know, I said, uh, I said oh, you think I'm bad tonight? Oh, you, they said, you suck. I said, oh, my God, you should have been here last night. I really sucked last <laughs> night. And I, and I liked, at the time, the bantering, that was good, you know, so it didn't bother me. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited. I got George Wallace, and I'm going to introduce him. I got a long introduction. This guy's had a long career. I've tried to edit it down, failed miserably. So just, if you can, put the intro on one and a half speed, and then we'll get to the next thing. It'll be all good. I'll sound like a munchkin. It'll be beautiful. All right, George Wallace is an award-winning stand-up comic and renowned Vegas headliner, having also established a successful TV and film career over the last 40 years. Born in Atlanta, George shared the same name as segregationist Alabama Governor George C. Wallace, posing a unique situation for the budding African-American humorist. As a child, Wallace was nicknamed the Governor. Though his love for comedy was evident at a very young age, he understood the importance of an education which led to his enrollment at the University of Akron, where he earned his degree in transportation, marketing, and advertising skills that would serve Wallace throughout his entire comedy career. Upon graduation, Wallace moved to New York City in pursuit of his childhood dream. He began working in transit advertising, where he eventually became the company's vice president, selling ad space on the sides of mass transit vehicles while supervising other sales reps. His break came when one of his clients, who had opened a comedy club, was taken by Wallace's friendly and natural sense of humor. That client asked Wallace to perform at his club. So in 1977, Wallace walked on stage for the first time. He wore a preacher's robe and called himself the Reverend Dr. George Wallace. His routine was improvised and used the same imagery and delivery of the spiritual leaders who had influenced Wallace as a child. One of Wallace's first jobs in the entertainment field was working as a writer for comedian Red Fox. 
from Sanford and Son. On the big screen, he made the most out of small roles in such films as Things Are Tough All Over in 1982, starring Tommy Chung and Cheech Marin, and Punchline with Tom Hanks in 1988 and Sally Field. Wallace's career flourished in the 1990s with parts in films like A Rage in Harlem with Gregory Hines and Forrest Whitaker and appearances on such TV shows as Seinfeld, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and in 1995, he won the American Comedy Award for the Best Stand-Up Performer, the same year he appeared as the mayor of Gotham City in Batman Forever. In 1991, he was featured in his own HBO One Night Stand and was then named Best Male Stand-Up Comedian at the 1995 American Comedy Awards. At the time, his unique brand of social commentary also became, began to prove popular with radio audiences. And since then, he's had supporting roles in a number of other movies, including the Coen Brothers film Lady Killers and Batman Forever, as forementioned. In television, he has had starring guest roles on Seinfeld, Moesha the Parkers, and The Heat of the Night with Carol O'Connor, Tall Hopes, and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In 2004, Wallace appeared as the headliner star of his own show at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas for a 30-day initial run. Guess what, everybody? Sin City showed his admiration by extending Wallace's contract indefinitely and nicknaming him the new Mr. Vegas. Unlike any other comedy show in Las Vegas, Wallace gave away a number of prizes every night, including CDs, DVDs, diamond necklaces, dinner at the prestigious restaurants, gourmet chocolates, tropical cruises, and even a new car. Sorry, Oprah, he did it first. He celebrated his 10th anniversary headlining at the Flamingo in March 2014 and then announced he was closing the show to head back out on the road. Wallace was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2013 Soul Train-centric Comedy All-Star Awards and won Best Stand-Up Comedian at the prestigious American Comedy Awards after four consecutive nominations. As a veteran radio personality, he has also made appearances on the Steve Harvey Morning Show and is a charter member of the Tom Joyner Morning Show. Wallace regularly performs in comedy clubs across the country and is an ambassador for the United States government, performing at military bases all over the world. His first book, Laugh It Off, was published in 2014, because in its third printing. Wallace's most recognized material is his IB thinking lines and jokes about everything from conversational thoughts to political aspirations. Each show he engages in, members of the audience in comedic and comical banter, if provoked, he might even throw out a few of his own signature Yo Mama jokes. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't even know how to tell you how honored I am to introduce my guest today, if he's still awake, George Wallace. Can I talk? <laughs> Let me tell you something. That intro was something I know a lot more about me. I didn't know. I forgot. All of that, you know, the, the jokes, that was, you said something very important, and I just started on this. It happens once a year. This year. Listen, you, you talk about, I said, you know what, I got too many good jokes to get rid of them and just let go. I'm going to bring some of these jokes back. For instance, I did a joke 20 years ago that I could balance the budget if I were president. Let's have a garage sale, and let's sell some shit we don't need. Let's sell West Virginia. 
<laughs> and then I said, you know what? That's too good to throw away. Bring it back 20 years later. Barry, you're right. If it's funny, I try to do evergreen material. If it's funny, it's funny. And it's a whole different generation. You know, every uh, 20 years difference, it's still funny. It's laughter. It's giving back. And it's mine. So what different does it matter? And the people laugh. And now you can say, let's sell the Trump Towers. Oh, don't don't even do that. Let's, <laughs> the Trump Towers. Let's just get rid of him. You know, <laughs> I hate him. Why did you bring the conversation was going up great? This idiot. You know, I'm trying to be the greatest bullshitter in the world. That's what I want to be—the greatest bullshitter in the world. And this idiot comes along and making me look like an asshole. He's making me look like an asshole. You know? You have you listening to him? I mean, all of the smart people. We're in Montreal right now. There must be uh, 3,000 comedians when we came up here at first. There were like 50, but now there's 3,000. Every time a steel mill closes, there's 5,000 new comedians. <laughs> For sure. Uh, but out of the 3,000, if you find three, what is that, 0.01%, uh, uh, three comedians might like Donald Trump, and they like him just so they can do the jokes. But this guy's an idiot because... We know what the social ills are of the country. We know what people like. And everybody can tell you, he is a con artist, he's a bullshitter, and he's an idiot. And uh, there's just so much to be said about this stupid-ass guy. How do you really feel? I I don't even know whether to say I hate him or not. I'm just, how could he be running? What's pissed me off even more are people that are following him, and especially the black people that are following What is he going to do for... How could he relate to you? Uh, anybody, all of the people that are following him, he's never been in a grocery store. You, you don't know shit about, you know. Uh, he's never been in the Piggly Wiggly? <laughs> he's, I was in Piggly Wiggly once. That's the first time I got fired. The manager said to me, Wallace, how long have you been working here not counting tomorrow? Over some watermelon when I was a kid in school. Yeah, this guy doesn't relate. He can't relate to anybody. Trust me, and we're gonna do it bigly. I'm gonna do it. I'm the only guy who can handle this situation. Oh my God, he's the only one in America can do this, and people are buying it. Why are they buying it? Most of them are uneducated. First, okay. Some of them are very, you know, there's the assholes, there's idiots, and then there's intellectuals. Now it could be argued that Republicans believe that they're older, wiser, and more educated than a lot of the Democrats who are younger and don't have the worldliness and don't have as much education as the older statesmen, men and women. So why are these older people who seemingly are educated are feeling the way they do about him and you don't? Mostly they're old and mean. If you were to look in the audience, they're all hateful. They're they're, they're propagating hate and uh, uh, fear. That's what's going on right now. If you were to, we just, it went a great time. We had two conventions back to back. If you look at their convention and look at the Democrats, did you ever see any joke, any smiles, any any happiness the two weeks they were on? We last, we laughing and having fun and people are singing and you got uh, uh, all types of people represented and uh, uh, people with disabilities out there. You got your women, mothers and of uh, deceased kids, and you got your firemen and police. Just everybody, everybody that they had that the Republican Party, uh, just mean and hateful and a lot of racists. 
You can tell. See, you can tell a lot of races just by listening to their language. I don't know. You're out of New York or Boston or somewhere like that, and you got that very uh, the dialect. But when you hear people like Lindsey Graham talking like that, you just oh O'Connell is that his name? Some people. These people are never happy. You just we can look through them. Go. That's a racist bastard. Give me some more names. And the black people that are following, like this idiot uh, Ben Carson. Now he's a brain surgeon. How do you become a brain surgeon without a brain? <laughs> what, what did he think America is going to go from black to blacker? And who does he think he is blinking and shit? He ain't Joel Osteen. <laughs> Up there just blink. And and he's how could you be president? And if you're going to give. Uh, Speech in your hands or directly, and and it takes you four hours. You could go to, you could go to Bloomingdale's and get some underwear or whatever, and come back. And this idiot. That's what people say about my podcast. I heard you do my intro. I did leave. <laughs> I went to Cleveland, and nobody wants to go to Cleveland. <laughs> I went to Cleveland. I was in Cleveland yesterday, by the way, and uh, it was in the seventies, and um, not the temperature, the decade. <laughs> so. Tell me the first time you did stand-up comedy where you heard somebody in the crowd say the N-word. Well, when I started, that was very, very uh, common with the N-word because I started right after Richard Pryor, and everybody was using the N-word. It was no problem, to, uh, even some white people. And I even used it once. I did. A, they had a restaurant in Los Angeles that would sell, uh, it was called Norm's. And every Friday night, they would sell all the fish you could eat for, like, Four ninety-five, and I went and told the manager. I said, "You should do this with chicken." He said, "We used to, but niggas were coming in from Chicago." Seven forty-sevens in the parking lot, but everybody was using the N word. It was it was acceptable. You could say everything. Well, you couldn't say bitch back then. No, that that was bad. That was worse. You can say the N word, but you couldn't get away with bitch or the C word. You couldn't do anything. Uh, uh, but now. I, it's not a good word to use. And I teach the young kids, don't use it. I stopped using it last Tuesday. So it's, <laughs> not, it's not cool, you know. Now, I want you to answer this question a different way. Yes. When's the first time you heard the N-word from an audience member? Oh, yeah, in New York City. When I first started, I was at the uh, comic strip, and I was on stage, and I was just starting. And, you know, New York is the greatest place to work. And, uh, and learn how to work. So I was up there doing it, and somebody said, uh, you ain't funny, nigga. Get off the stage. So that's how, you know, I said, I said oh, you think I'm bad tonight? Oh, you, they said, you suck. I said, oh, my God, you should have been here last night. I really sucked last <laughs> night. And I, and I liked, at the time, the bantering, that was good, you know, so it didn't bother me. It ain't the first time I heard the N-word. <laughs> when was the first time you heard it? When I was born. No. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor slapped Comedi your ass. Comedians will say anything to get a laugh, right? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When's the first time did you hear the N-word? Hello? Yes, Hello? Yes, are, are you? Am, who, am, I, am I? It's the only two of us sitting here. I've never told this story before. So, as people know on the podcast, I grew up in an all-white town called Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Yes. It's still all-white. Yeah. And my sister had a party when she was in high school, when she was 16, when my mom went out of town. Our cleaning lady, we had a cleaning lady named Shirley, who was African. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, 
and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. American. Okay, the only African-American. This is probably in 1970 or 72. Yeah, she probably still would have been uh, maybe Negro then. <laughs> maybe. And yeah, because black, she wasn't black then, and she definitely wasn't African-American. So she was probably Negro. Had it been a year earlier, I would have, she would have been colored. <laughs> so I know the history of this. So this all happened within a 48-hour period. I was driving with my mother and my grandmother through Springfield, Massachusetts, and I'm in the back seat. And my grandmother used a word that I, I'd never heard before, and it stunned me. And she said to my mom and her daughter, Barbara, don't go this way. The coloreds are here. Mm -hmm. You don't want to drive where the coloreds are. Right. And that, to me, as I say it right now, it feels worse than the N-word. And then when you're young like that, you're kind of like inquisitive. I want to see what the coloreds are. When you're young kids, you're like, I'm going through there to see what the coloreds are. Yes, and so... Then my sister had a party uh -huh. when my mother was out of town. And it was one of those parties that, again, I'm 12 or 13. You know the kind of party that a teenager throws when people aren't around. Right. And apparently these kids were doing all sorts of drugs and doing acid and whatever, <sighs> marijuana, whatever it was. And this guy came upstairs, this teenager. And I'll never forget this. He used the N-word, and then he looked at her, and he said, I've killed before, and I'll kill again. And she ran into my mother's room and closed the door and, like, left me standing there. And she just yelled as she was running, get in your room and lock the door. And we stayed in our rooms while we heard the party going on all night long and tried to cry ourselves to sleep. And I don't know why she never called the police. I don't know why I never called the police. But that was the first time I ever experienced that in my life, and I never wanted to experience it again. I would not want to experience that either. That was pretty bad. Pretty bad. That's why you've never told that story. Because it's um, pretty bad, pretty sad. And, uh, George, when a guest here on the show is really killing and being really funny, I like to bring the room down as low as possible. Well, you did a good job. <laughs> you did a good job of that. Well, that's okay. It's a story that had to be told. I feel safe with you. Well, you are safe. I mean, I'm, I'm real. So I'm a very easygoing person. I understand everything. And I've gone through with what... I've lived the experience that you've talked that you're talking about, so, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, 
And so I've, I've lived, you're not telling me anything new. When's the first time you thought to yourself, I could, I could die right now here at this moment. Something could go down here where I could lose my life. I haven't had that experience yet. No, I've been in a good environment all my life. Um, nothing, um, I haven't gone through that yet. Any experience where you used humor to diffuse a horrible situation? I probably have and don't know it because I'm a humorous person and I always interject a joke somewhere. Even when we have funerals, it's all about laughter and happiness. That's, I think laughter is healing and it fits in every occasion, no matter what happens. There's a reason to laugh. Has the rarest of occasions ever happened to you where somebody died at one of your shows? I've actually had the uh, opportunity of having five people have heart attacks at my show. Five people had heart attacks in your show? Yeah. At the same show during the no, same show? No, not at the same show, but different. As uh, During my 40 years, I've had five people to have a heart attack at some uh, major uh, medical emergency. So you're in the middle of your act, and they're carrying the person out on a stretcher. Well, I'm in Caesar's. It did happen at Caesar's Palace. Then it happened at the Flamingo. 750 people in the room. Somebody had a heart attack, and everybody, ah! And I knew what was happening. They got to call in the the, the the paramedics. Now I've got to change this whole room over and bring all the attention to me. Where the person had the heart attack, I moved to this side of the room. Eyes on me. Let's uh, eyes on me. Look at me, and I. I'm in demand, I'm command of the show and continue the show while the paramedics was working on the guy and they were talking back and forth to the hospital every now and then I'll say something, repeat what was said on the recorder, but I'm in control. Otherwise, the show would have been over. The show would have been over. I've been in many situations like that. I've been in arenas with 15,000 people. The lights go out, lose uh, power in the room. Flashlight on my face with a bullhorn. Keep rolling. And uh, I never will forget that night. That was with Tom Jones and uh, somewhere in Kentucky. But the promoter gave me, at the time, a flat-screen TV when nobody else had one. I saved him a lot of money. Had I not continued, people would have, you know, it was dark. They would have uh, vacated the building. But I handled that situation. I, I, I'm pretty good at uh, crowd control. Is that the worst situation you've ever had where you changed the tone and made it successful, or was there others? There's others. There's one. The first time I bombed, I bombed badly. It's huge, like as it's, it's, uh, uh, Trump would say. I did a show. I was just starting in New York. Uh, I forgot the mountains. It's not the Pocono Mountains, but the, the Neville. What do you call those mountains? Grossingers? Uh, the Catskills. Catskills. I'm on stage, and a guy... Then New York City was a manager. I'm only doing comedy less than a year. He takes me up to a show in the main room. And main full of Jews. You know, Jews and blacks are the best audience you could ever get. But if you're not good, it could be the worst audience you could ever get. So I'm on stage. I'm not ready. I'm doing jokes, a lot of stock jokes. You know, one year you don't, you can't have an act. And I got not one laugh for 45 minutes. Not one laugh. But I stayed up there. 45 minutes. It was worse than a funeral. I mean, it hurt. I bombed so badly, so it was horrible. I wanted to drive off the Tappanzi Bridge. But I did go back to the Neverly two years later. There was an old Jewish waitress. She had been there for like 80 years, and she tapped me on the shoulder. She says, much better this time, eh? Very nice. (laughs) The difference between the Jewish audience watching a comedian bomb 
and an African-American audience yeah, watching totally. Comedian Bomb is a little bit different. An old Jewish white audience watching Comedian Bomb, they've been taught by their Jewish elders to just be respectful, keep your mouth shut, let them get through it, and then applaud politely after they're done. African-American audience. That is not true. These Jews, they have a thing. What, what do you call it when you stir your drink? A stir. The, a stir. And they would take it and they would bang it against the glasses. Ding, 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 ding. That's all they would do. That's because they wanted you to kiss that old Jewish waitress. Is that what it is? <laughs> and the black, and I told them the difference with the black audience. Black audience, if you don't get a laugh in the first minute, you're booed Ooh, off the stage. In the first minute? I think you better be rolling by 30 seconds. <laughs> By 30 seconds, yeah. Did you ever have a tough time at the Apollo where they boo people? No, I didn't. But you, you know, when you first walk out there and you rub the little stump, uh, I've never had a bad experience there. You rub the stump for good luck. But that's, you had to do that. You had to do that. Or they would boo you immediately. Rub the stump. And I, so I've been blessed. That's what I tell women when I'm with them. Is that right? Yes. Rub the stump. Yes, it's good luck. Well, see, pretty soon, let's see if you were hung like me, you said rub the branch. <laughs> rub the what? Rub the branch. <laughs> You're coming up a little short. You said rub the stump. I rub the branch, you know. Oh, man. Rub that's the whole tree. Fantastic. You know? <laughs> I rub love the that. branch. Yeah. Love the branch. Keep rubbing it. It'll become a, a tree. Keep <laughs> rub it. It's a limb. Rub the limb. George, I have to ask you, you've had so many experiences in your life and so many bizarre things have happened to you. Tell me about one gig you went on with some people who might not have been famous at the time, but are really famous now. And comedians, they're always booked on these hell gigs and you don't know where you're going, but you know it's not going to be good. Right. Tell our audience about one story where you were with people who were just young comedians then, but now they're superstars now like you, where... Everything went wrong, and talk about the gig and how you guys handled it. I was once on tour in Montgomery, Alabama. George Wallace, Steve Harvey, and a little kid named Ricky Smiley. And so Steve Harvey was just, I was headlining, and Steve Harvey was, we were co-headlining, and Ricky was opening, and uh, we liked to dress. You know, some black entertainers like to put the full suit on and everything like that, just really dress. And Ricky Smiley showed up in jeans. And Steve Harvey went off, made this kid get off the stage, go back home, go to a store, whatever, buy some clothes before you go on the stage. And I went like, wow, it was really horrible the way he treated that kid. You're not going on the stage with us in jeans. And uh, that was kind of tough for me at the time to see that happen. And uh, and now you can't go on the stage unless you, it's required that you have jeans now <laughs> in most cases. Awesome. There's got to be something worse than that happened to me. I don't. I don't know. I'm, right. I'm so blessed, and I've had such good times, and uh, it's all been fun for me. It was my job is to make the environment nice. I only did come in New York for six months, then I went out to Las Vegas, 1977. I mean, Los Angeles, and I did the Tonight Show. I think really maybe too early, but I was working immediately after. Remember back in the day, you did the Tonight Show. You were working the next day. That's right. You did the Tonight Show, you're working on I used to watch David Brennan and all those guys. I did the Tonight Show. The next day I was working for Natalie Cole, opening for Natalie Cole outside 17,000 people uh, at the Southern Illinois University. And I've been working since then. You said you did the Tonight Show too soon. Now, for those of you who might not know how it worked back then, there was a legendary producer named Jim McCauley. Jim McCauley. The Tonight Show and book some of the greatest comedians ever. 
Tell us how your trajectory went with Jim. Carol Leifer, who was on the podcast a while back, said that she auditioned for Jim 23 or 24 <sighs> times before she got The Tonight Show. What about you? One time. One time. I was at the, uh, you know, well, which would be at the, at the comedy store. So I go up and Jim comes up and says, you want to do the show? And, you know, you couldn't say no at the time. Maybe I should have said, but I said, uh, but Jim went over all the material with me and he did. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. did make sure you had four sets before you did one. And that was good. But I think had I done it a year later, I mean, I had 12 sets. You can never go on too late. Mm -hmm. But I made, I, 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 it was good that I did it. So when you look at your first Tonight Show and you Ooh. watch that set, you're Ooh. not happy with it. Ooh. Ooh, I told Jerry the other day at Seinfeld, I said, I saw my Tonight Show, my first Tonight Show. It wasn't good, even though it was good. But as I look at it today, I'm, of course, much more professional. Why would they put a comedian back on? You did the Tonight Show probably, if I'm not mistaken, over 30 times. Any time. You? you ask any comedian that see that, that, that will view their earlier work, they're like, oh, my God, that's just terrible. It's almost like listening to your voice, you know, especially your voice when you listen <laughs> to you. Go like, oh, my God, that is gross. That is terrible. <laughs> Have you heard your voice? You sound like an idiot. <laughs> have you heard you? I'm talking to you I know you are that's why I'm laughing <laughs> I sound like an idiot I think most people don't like their voice but I love people with great voices you, uh, you actually sound great I you don't do. like my voice you, you sound great when I edit this podcast I do it with earplugs in. you hear that right yes no, I but you have a great voice you know very 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 nice voice you articulate very well do you do radio you can do radio I you think I have a great face for radio. No, that's not true. No. You, in that case, you you're not going to be working at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, George came here with one of his representatives. You gotta you gotta know when a show is going well when the guy is laying prone on the floor of a hotel room saying "fuck it, I'm giving up. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take a nap here." That's my manager. He's with me all the time, everywhere I go. Isn't that nice? Oh, my God almighty. What's your manager's uh, full name, please? I don't know. I just met him. 
<laughs> just we're at the comedy festival. This is where you learn who people are. He says, "You are, uh, yeah, I need a manager." Come I on. can't believe up to, somebody you, signed you during the festival. That's said, exciting. He, I said, "I'm going up to Barry Cat's room." He said, "Oh, you need a manager. You need to be represented. <laughs> You're going up to that guy." And he said to me, "His voice sucks." <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I am the most imitated manager in show business. It's horrifying. Everybody does an impression of me. I can't stop them. Is that right? What did you do before you legal law, right? What no, you, no. I started as a stand-up comic, and I didn't make it. So this I is just true. You were out of Boston area where that's the smart right. comics yes. come from, right? Yes. All of the smart comics come out of Boston. Stephen Wright, Paula Poundstone. Yeah. How, what is his cadence? Stephen Wright, how much slower can you get? <laughs> Paula Poundstone is out of Boston? Paula Poundstone. Thought she was out of San Francisco. Bobcat Goldthwait, Lenny Clark, uh, who was on Rescue Me, Louis yeah. C.K., yeah, Bill I Burr. His, I just did his show. Bill Burr, Bill Burr is crazy, man. Yeah, Dane oh Cook. Oh, my God, uh, Dane all Cook, the, yeah. All these you people. had the opportunity of managing uh, Dane yes, Cook. Yes, I not? did, 17 years. 17 years. How long have I been managing you? Oh, it's going to be about, as soon as he leaves, he's over there. <laughs> he's over there. When he falls asleep, yeah, I've got he falls the papers. Asleep, I, he has the paper right here. With a, <laughs> I, all I got to do is sign it. He has the pen here. You're prepared, aren't you? I am prepared. I got the pen. I got the contract. I got the blood. I got the fingerprints. You're talking too loud. I got no, the urine gonna, specimen. You're going to wake him. You're talking too loud. I'm oh, sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. So he loud. just turned over. <laughs> I have so many things to ask. Go ahead and ask me. I'm, I got nowhere to go. I got to put a set together for tomorrow night. I am not ready to do my special for the gala. Oh, you're and You saw me work last night, didn't you? Yes, and I, don't, I did. I'm not. I'm I will be honest with you. You're about 75% there. You're going to pull a few things out of that one? Oh, you must. Yeah, because I, I'm only doing seven minutes. Yeah. You saw me do like 18 yeah. last night. Yeah. 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 But I can see what you're going to do. I know what you're going to close with. I know what you're going to open with. I know some key things in the beginning, but there's some things there that I don't know what you're going to do yet, but we'll okay. figure it out when I manage you. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, we did change because Hillary was on last night, so, you know, so we're going to maybe throw in something that happened during the Democratic, Democratic Convention. Fun question for you. A little known fact about you. Okay. There was a wedding where you were a best man at. I'd love to know what your speech was. You're probably talking about Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, that is Christmas correct. Day, December 25, 1999. 1999. Because I was partying like it's 1999. And Prince, you know, that song. And, and, God, and Prince came out. You know, we just lost Prince last year. And I was lucky enough to have him uh, attend my show in Las Vegas. Isn't that nice? He came to my birthday party. He was my surprise guest at my birthday party, Prince. Wow. Fantastic. I didn't know he was there. He was, I just happened to look down. He was hugging my leg. You know, he's just that short and I didn't know. Did he perform? Uh, no, he didn't perform. He Did just he came up Did he do the splits stage. in front of you? He didn't do, you know, that's why he was in pain doing all of those splits and things like that as he got older. And that's probably why he was on the drugs. But the wedding was 1999 with Jerry Seinfeld. I was the best man. And I told Jessica that I, uh, we had been best friends for over 20 years, that uh, if she got half the love that I got from my roommate, she was going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they've been married for 15 years now. Isn't that nice? It's amazing. Most, most people don't last that long. Don't I know it. See, that's what I'm telling you. He's a, he's a good guy, and I wish everybody had a friend like Jerry Seinfeld. You said something roommates. Yeah, we were roommates for 13 years. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah. Well, you know, we both are working, and, uh, and it was a studio, too. Who had the right side of the futon and who had the left side? <laughs> no, we had a sofa and we had a bed. 
And the sofa would, you know, back in the day, the sofa would turn into a sofa bed. And who had that and who had the bed? I had the sofa. Well, he was there like five years before me, so he had the bed. I had the sofa bed. Yeah. Incredible. And we were young. You know, young people were uh, crazy. We had some great experiences. Somebody broke into the place and stole a brand new TV I had bought, a Sony. You know, back in the day, if you had a Sony TV, that was it, man. They broke into our, our studio. It was very unusual because most people breaking through the door. These guys bro- broke in through the wall. <laughs> they went in the wall to made a hole big enough through the wall to bring their television out. And back then, televisions weighed as much as a bed. More, yeah. Remember, we went down to Uncle Steve's in New York City <laughs> and got a big TV. I guess they must have weighed 80 pounds easily, right? Oh, probably more than that. It was a Sony Trinitron. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, we still, we're still friends, Seinfeld. And like I said, I was the best man in this wedding. I've served as the honorary uh, the baby boys would uh, have a brisk. Uh, I have to hold one leg when the baby boys were for the brisk. And, uh, uh, and do you bury before. the foreskin? I'm sorry. Do you bury the foreskin or just? I don't know. They say you're, you're supposed to faint when that happens. Nobody <laughs> told me, but uh, you know. I just don't like those events because then they have the whole the food afterwards. There's some waiter coming by. Would you like some clams on the half shell? Right. No, I would not want clams on the half shell. I just saw the baby lose his skin. But what, what happened was they get the baby drunk. They give the baby a piece of gauze and just load it up with wine and give it to the baby. And they don't tell the baby. Just get drunk and the baby's just laughing. And all of a sudden, I don't know where, they rip that skin. And, and, and the ladies just go like, ah, people are crying, you know. I, I know they're crying because they see the future being yeah. damaged. But uh, <laughs> the baby's rewarded after that. And, uh, that's one thing. I, you mentioned some uh, something earlier about the bar mitzvah. That's one thing I like about the Jews, that you have a culture that is so wonderful. A boy turns 13, a girl turns 13, and they're rewarded with gifts from the other Jewish friends. Nobody else does that. When I say rewarded in the... In the, in the, in the uh, not segments and increments of 18s. $18, 180. That's right. 1800. But, and, and, and the kid is rewarded. So, therefore, that's why a lot of you Jewish guys are so successful. By the time that 13 and that um, amount grows when the kids get out of high school, there's a college fund there. That is so nice. Have you thought of converting? When I, I can't be 13 again, but it would be nice. I think that's one of the greatest uh, parties you could ever have is a bar mitzvah. Have you thought about adult circumcision? I do need it because I'm uh, just just cut take an inch off, you know. Jesus Christ! If I took an inch off, I'd have an any. Well, I'm just uh, any. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm uh, I'm going to lose some weight because Doctor Oz said that it's a scientific fact that. Every 35 pounds you lose, you can gain an inch <laughs> on your telewacker and Really? Is that true? Yeah. And so I'm right now I'm dieting. I need to lose 105 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> George, I'm being serious. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. You look it up. Mac, it. My, my producer just lost 60 pounds. How now many, you know why. Max, how many inches have you gained on your tallywhacker? Inch two inches. Two inches? Yeah. That's see? amazing. Yeah, because before then, a friend of mine, uh, A.J. Jamal, he says you have a, a weenie-do. You know what a weenie-do is? No. When you're 
stomach sticks out further than your weenie do, that's when you know you have a problem. God, I have a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If your stomach sticks out further than your weenie do, you have a problem. All right. <laughs> <laughs> As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.